let's price each of these tons of CO2 to, frankly, basic economics, basic law of demand, right? Price up, demand down. I'm still going to fly to see my parents. I'll be happy to pay the extra couple hundred bucks that my ton of CO2 will have cost. Of course, statistically, on average, we will change our behavior, we'll change our investment behavior, we'll change technology to incorporate that cost of carbon. That was Gernot Wagner, a climate economist, professor at NYU, and co-author of Climate Shock. Gernot is joining me today to discuss the economics of climate change, both what it costs to move to renewable energy and the potential costs if we don't. Welcome to Capital Considerations, the market and economic podcast that's fully invested in your success. I'm your host, Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer of Wilmington Trust. Climate change. It seems that all of a sudden, in the last six months since the administration changed in Washington, there's a renewed interest and renewed focus, both from a climate standpoint and also from an industrial standpoint. And as investors, it's something that we absolutely have to take stock of. So up until the last five years, it did seem like the U.S. was practically moving at a snail's pace relative to many other areas of the world, particularly Europe, when it came to implementing and prioritizing climate crisis policy. And while we're still playing catch up, things have certainly changed. And we're going to discuss why they've changed, how they've changed, and how they're going to continue to change. To talk us through the rapidly changing world of climate policy and the cost of climate change is Gernot Wagner. Gernot is a climate economics professor at NYU who pens Bloomberg's Risky Climate column. Gernot was also the founding executive director of Harvard's Solar Geoengineering Research Program and served as lead senior economist at Environmental Defense Fund. Gernot co-authored the book Climate Shock and his new book, Geoengineering, The Gamble, will be released this fall. Gernot, Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Before we begin, I want to stress that Wilmington Trust is nonpartisan and we take no political position one way or the other. And I think it's important to note that because, interestingly, climate policy is a fairly political topic. Our goal today is simply to explore where we've come from and where we're going and not take a position on it. So let's just start by defining a couple of basic terms, Gernot. Um, we use the terms climate change and global warming fairly interchangeably, but a layperson's understanding of those words would certainly suggest that global warming refers to just that, the fact that the planet seems to be heating up for whatever reason that that may be happening. And climate change seems to be the consequence of the fact that the world is warming, whether it be more storms, whether it be more droughts, whether it be other problems that we're confronting. Do we have that right? Is that how you would lay out those terms? Yeah, it, it sounds about right. So, so global warming is global average warming, um, which matters, of course. Um, but frankly, it's the extremes that often matter much, much more. It's sort of these sorts of things that go well beyond just global average temperatures. Yeah, and it's really... Pretty interesting from a scientific standpoint, being a layperson, of course, because when we think about the idea of the planet warming up by a degree or two degrees, you know, Celsius, let's say, it doesn't seem like that dramatic 
a phenomenon, but when it translates into you know, purely economic consequences as mediated through actual real changes in the climate, it's pretty remarkably profound. Exactly, right? And yeah, so yeah, there's a few things here. So nobody lives at the average, right? So if you literally average temperatures across the entire globe, well, you, you miss a lot. For example, uh, the polar ice caps, um, you know, the poles, uh, warm at around three times the global average, right? Bad news for your oceanfront property. And then, of course, there's all the extreme events, um, more intense hurricanes, uh, more droughts, more floods uh, on both ends. And you know, for someone steeped in sort of the finance of it all, it's the variance, it's the variability that often matters much, much more than the small incremental increases in global average temperatures, global average sea level, and so on. Okay, so for purposes of our conversation today, we're going to make a couple of key assumptions. We're going to assume that global warming is real, and we're going to assume that global warming is to a large degree, if not fully, but certainly to a large degree, the byproduct of human activity. And given those assumptions, why is it that there's clearly a very significant upswelling of dialogue and focus on these phenomena in the last six or 12 months? Is it simply because there's been a change in administration? Is it because in the wake of the pandemic, there's almost a new understanding of the challenges we face on this planet and what nature can do to us? Is it because we've reached an inflection point on a point where if we don't do something quickly, we'll be truly past the point of no return? Maybe it's just the fact that we have a new generation that's come of age, the millennials, that really need to worry about a longer future than the rest of us. What's driving all this intense focus? It's, it's all of the above, right? So, yeah, we do see more of these extreme weather phenomena hit home, right? This is no longer just, uh, oh, yeah, they over there sometime in the future. Uh, no, right? So, we actually, you know, actually, we shut down Wall Street preemptively for 48 hours because of climate change, right? Because Superstorm Sandy was approaching New York. You know, hurricanes have happened before. Science can attribute more intense storms, hurricanes, more frequent ones to CO2 emissions going into the atmosphere. Okay, so why is all of this suddenly so much more prominent? Of course, right? The change in administrations has a, has a lot to do with this in this country um, because suddenly right, we have a, an all-of-government approach, how uh, the Biden-Harris administration likes to call it, to address climate change, both the mitigation, the adaptation. And of course, we see a lot happening everywhere, right? Industry, finance, um, suddenly climate risk is front and center of many of the conversations. Before we talk about what we're going to do about it, can you dimension for us in any kind of quantitative way that's relatable what the costs are? In other words, there's, we know that the, there's scientific and environmental cost, but in terms of industrial cost, what's the best way to think of 
the cost? Is it sea level change and the, the, the houses that we're going to lose? Is it the cost of carbon recapture? How should we try to dimension or start quantifying for ourselves what the costs are of climate change? So I guess in sort of broad terms, there is two types of costs here. One is the cost of unmitigated climate change, right? It's the cost of, oh, shoot, stuff's hitting the fan. We need to adjust, adapt, right? So, you know, look, look at Texas, right? So Texas shuts down for days, for a week because of extreme cold on the one hand and it shuts down because of extreme heat. And when I say shut down, right, it's basically ERCOT, right, the, the grid operator telling Texans, we didn't plan ahead here. We don't have enough capacity. It'll be very, very hot or very, very cold. So you, dear consumer, dear household, will be running your air conditioners or your heaters uh, more than usual. Uh, so the extremes on both ends. And we, as the grid operator, can't keep up. So, sorry, you might be experiencing brownouts, blackouts, and so on. No, it's not all linked to climate change directly, right? Blackouts, brownouts have happened before. But, yeah, these extremes are going up, right? That's the direct cost um, of unmitigated climate change. And then, of course, right, the flip side is there are costs of acting, it's a lot better to anticipate and to plan ahead. But those are, two, those are costs too, right? It's the costs of um, climate policy of the transition that somebody has to pay for, right? Uh, yes, those are mostly investments and investments are you know, typically considered to be good, but, but you know, still somebody has to pay for that. Now, investment crisis equals opportunity. On the other hand, Somebody's profits will go down because they will have to fortify their chemical plant in Corpus Christi, Texas, because of um, sea level rise or uh, um, higher storm surges and so on and so forth. Gernot, is there any, do you have any shorthand way, you know, do you scientists, guys, academics, right, that, that you can say, for example, okay, you've used carbon emission and you created for us a direct link between a certain amount, a certain quantum of carbon emission and a certain impact on the, on the, on the world. So I would think that you could create some type of shorthand formula and say, okay, it costs X amount to recapture a certain amount of carbon. The scientists estimate that we need to recapture this amount of carbon in order to reverse the impacts. And therefore, if we were to, if we were to succeed as a civilization, um, this is the amount of money that needs to be spent on that carbon capture in one way, shape, or form um, in order to reverse the impacts. Is there any kind of shorthand like that that you can tell us it's this many trillions of dollars? You'll be happy to hear that there is, yes. <laughs> so there's a couple of things here. So one, when you say, right, shorthand for recapturing the CO2. So in, in many ways, Yes, carbon capture will have to be part of the eventual solution. But frankly, there's a lot of things we can do ahead of time, right? There is, you know, cutting CO2 emissions in the first place. Carbon capture plays a role in that. 
carbon capture and storage, which is literally adding the technology to the smokestack, right? And then, yes, you can suck CO2 out of thin air. It's technologically possible. Uh, you know, that sounds expensive. It also is. But I, sort of to, to your question, right? So, um, you know, do us scientist types have a sort of a shorthand for this? Yes, we do. Um, and especially the climate economists um, among us, um, I included. <laughs> um, it's called the social cost of carbon. It's basically the, you know, the, the nerdy um, way of putting it is it's the present discounted value of the future stream of climate damages associated with that one extra ton of CO2 emissions emitted. Every one of these tons um, causes um, a couple hundred dollars-ish, plus minus 50 to you know, hundreds of dollars in damage over its lifetime in the atmosphere. There's a lot of assumptions that go into this calculation. But yeah, the number you care about, you ought to care about is how much damage to the economy, to society, to ecosystems, to the world, does that one extra ton of CO2 cause? And by extension, of course, how much, how high should each of these tons emitted cost, right? So it's a, it's a direct link here that says, hey, there is this damage that this ton causes. So, you know, no, we're not trying to ban flights, right? We're not trying to ban uh, economic activities, certain economic activities here, you know, not at all. What you need to do is to basically say, hey, there is this concept that says each ton of CO2 should cost a certain amount of money, let's price each of these tons of CO2 to, frankly, basic economics, basic law of demand, right? Price up, demand down. I'm still going to fly to see my parents. I'll be happy to pay the extra couple hundred bucks that my ton of CO2 will have cost. Of course, statistically, on average, we will change our behavior. We'll change our investment behavior. We'll change technology to incorporate that cost of carbon. The economy is about $60 trillion every year. And what I'm thinking is, can you say, okay, let's say the will is present. What's the check size we need to write? Is it 5 trillion? Is it 10 trillion? Is it 20 trillion? In order to fix this problem, I know it's not that simple, of course, but I'm trying to quantify for our audience uh, how, how big is this expense in order to fix the problem. And I think it's a good segue to where I want to go with the conversation because as I think about it, Gernot, there's two different ways that we effectively fix this problem. One way is through policy, which is to say that um, governments force people to act differently, companies to act differently through rules and regulations and agreements and treaties like the Paris Climate Accord. And the second way is that partly as a byproduct of the first, um, but not entirely, is through innovation and through capitalism. It actually becomes in people's economic interest to use LED light bulbs instead of incandescent light bulbs because they're cheaper. So it's a combination of those two things. Do I have the basic structure correct? So yes, yes, and yes, right? So it's essentially about pricing the negative externality. And of course, it's about subsidizing the good stuff. Right, the clean, the lean, the mean, new technologies, and frankly, you know, we are in this amazing world where, uh, you know, the International Energy Agency (IEA), which, by the way, right, I mean, they're not a bunch of environmentalists. They were founded as sort of the counterweight 
to OPEC um, among the energy-consuming nations of the world. Um, so IEA basically comes out sa and says late last year that solar photovoltaic, solar panels by now are the cheapest form of electricity in history. And of course they are, right? So, you know, it depends on the cost of finance, it depends on, you know, cheap money, basically, to, to invest it because there's a high upfront cost and then you, you know, you print money for the rest of the duration. Uh, but yeah, solar photovoltaic, solar panels are really, really cheap. They, they cost about a tenth of what they did 10 years ago. We look at the industry, right? And we talk about these things called cost curves, right? And the cost curves are parabolically down. And the same thing for wind, right? Exactly. So wind has been cheaper for longer. So actually globally, we now produce more electricity still with wind than with solar. But solar is cheaper now. But frankly, the trend is clear. And uh, yeah, how did we get there? Well, we got there by, frankly, massive, massive subsidies. So on the demand side, frankly, you know, we've had the conservative chancellor of Germany, right, Angela Merkel, she, over the last 15 years, right, has basically led this transformation of, you know, Europe's industrial powerhouse to the tune of them getting half of its electricity from renewables, wind and solar by now. Um, why? Well, heavy, heavy subsidies, right? Subsidies on the demand side, uh, feed-in tariffs, right. that sort of stuff. Frankly, you know, the proper reaction for the rest of us is to start writing thank you notes to German households and Chinese households because they are subsidizing the stuff for the rest of us. And it's been very, very successful. We have climbed up the learning curve, slid down the cost curve in a dramatic fashion just in this past decade. The subsidies are not of the form primarily that I'm going to buy a unit of solar power and it's going to be subsidized by the German government. It's effectively what we're doing is we're allowing the industry to grow, to reach scale. We're allowing them to increase the research and development and get to a point where um, they can be competitive, more than competitive, as you're describing, with hydrocarbons. Is it the case that they're now born? They've, you know, the birthing, if you will, of these industries is complete and that um, they're off to the races and that they're going to eat the lunch of, you know, big oil or is more needed. What level of political will is needed in order to keep this or to accelerate this trend? Or is it already organically going to take over just through the sheer competitive potential of these industries that have been created? So the big question here is time. Over the next decades, will we see this transition away from fossil energy toward renewables? Of course, yes. That's happening automatically, organically. Not much more needed. The problem is it's still not happening fast enough on its own. So here's sort of the real test. Are we shutting down coal, natural gas plants right now Plants that are still operating profitably in order to replace them with renewables. And the short answer is no, right? We are not 
building coal plants anymore, not in this country, not in Europe. All the additional electricity needed by now is basically being produced by renewables, which is great. Right? But the real question, of course, is are we replacing the existing energy infrastructure? And, well, the short answer is no, we won't unless policy comes in. Right. Okay. Because, you know, you're not going to shut down your profitable so, coal plant right. unless somebody tells you to do that. Or frankly, somebody pays you to do it. But Garnot, but Garnot, it seems like there's an inherent challenge here, which is that the science itself is imprecise. And it's that imprecision, which I think enables society to just go on, if you will, with the inertia of the past. So, for example... You know, you look at the Southwest in the U.S., which has a record drought. You look at places like Lake Mead and Lake Powell, places where I went as a child, and the amount of water left in Lake Powell was less than a third of what it was when I was a child and I went there. And now it's producing less electricity um, from the dam. It's very imprecise to be able to say that if we accelerated the transition to renewables across the entire economy, that we would be able to reverse the drought that the farmers are experiencing, that the recreational boaters are experiencing. And it's that imprecision that of the science that's inherent in nature that makes this process require much more selflessness and vision, perhaps, than a lot of the other social problems that we confront. Okay, so why is climate change such a big problem? Because it's more global, more long-term, more irreversible, and yes, more uncertain than any public policy problem out there, at least in the combination of those four, right? So yes, this is a big, big problem. So how can you tell when you succeed on the mitigation front? Well, frankly, you can only tell statistically on average, global average temperatures stay constant, that sort of thing, right? Extremes don't go up. And yeah, that is incredibly difficult. But, you know, here's the flip side. Yes, there's a lot of risk. There's a lot of uncertainty. Well, you know, we know what to do with risk. We manage it. The way we should really think about climate policy is as an insurance policy, right? The right. premium you pay is the, you know, the couple hundred dollars per ton of CO2, um, which, you know, it doesn't guarantee that there's not going to be a bad outcome. But it clearly decreases the probability of that bad right. outcome. So, Gernot, I like the metaphor that you're using around insurance. If we invest the trillions of dollars, do we know what's the likelihood that it's not too late? In other words, how do we know that the insurance company is going to be solvent in this metaphor? So that we have a good sense that if we do the right things now, in the next years and decade or so, set ourselves on the right course, that it's not too late. Do we know that? Not to be too much of a downer here, um, but, you know, no, we cannot know for sure, which once again makes this such a difficult societal problem. That said... Can we be a lot sure? Yes, of course. Right? A lot more sure and a lot more certain about the outcome. This, you know, 
statisticians out there, climate scientists who who make a living out of these things, right? Every time some drought or flood happens, they publish a paper a couple of weeks later that says, and we can, you know, with 65% probability, we can say that this event, you know, was, was so extreme due to climate change. That said, is it, uh, should that tell us, uh, you know, basically, so here's the real question, right? Should it tell us something as sort of the rational or hopefully rational policymaker or for the matter, you know, the CTO, the CFO of your company, right? Who is tasked with making rational decisions? You know, yes, of course. CFOs, CTOs, right, don't make the money they do because of, you know, their gut feeling most days of the week. They make it because they can figure out the statistics and they can figure out, right, how on average your plant, your property near sea level or your ski lift, right, your ski resort or whatever, right, ought to react to the fact that climate change is real and, in fact, the climate is changing. So let's talk about the policy. We, we've established that we have a, a real consensus forming on the global stage, it would appear, with the U.S. now um, no longer the outlier that we had been over the last five years. China's even, probably for very selfish uh, economic reasons, coming around um, and talked about some pretty ambitious goals from a, a climate standpoint. So let's start with Paris Climate Accords. What does the Paris Climate Accord not say? I think that there's a conference later this year somewhere in the UK and Scotland or something uh, like that. Oh, yeah, Scotland, right. Scotland, yeah. What do you want to see at the next round? What is imperative specifically at the international level that is accomplished that's not in the Paris Climate Accord? What are the next steps? Paris Climate Agreement 2015 right, was basically a way to establish a global architecture, if you will, encourages individual countries to pledge their climate commitment and then have them reviewed at the international level. This is what I'm going to do. And dear world, dear global community, please hold me accountable. Well, as of a few weeks ago, uh, Germany has this goal of being net carbon neutral by 2045. By the way, China has one that says 2060 as its goal. Um, the U.S. doesn't have a national overall goal, but uh, at least the, you know uh, Joe Biden's campaign had this goal of net carbon neutrality in the power sector by 2035. What we need is right countries, frankly. Uh, putting forward more ambitious goals, in part much more ambitious goals of saying, right, we will pledge to, we have a national law, we have renewable portfolio standards, we have subsidies, we have carbon taxes, cap and trade system, you name it. We have these policies and yeah, we are putting them through parliament right now or we just passed them. But, you know, it's it's different by country, right? In Brazil, it matters more to focus on deforestation or reducing deforestation than, frankly, almost anything else. In other countries like the UK, it matters to right, phase out coal and restructure the economy, the, the energy sector, in a way right. to so all of you know, that generate 100% of energy from renewables. 
So all that is up for grabs, if you will, yeah. at the at the, at the Glasgow. And how significant is Glasgow in your mind? Is this a major moment? How do you think about it? On the one hand, I can sort of, you know, give you the answer that says Glasgow is a really big deal. You know, watch out for what happens there. We just have to, you know, pay attention. Um, on the other hand, I would say it's much, much more important to look at what happens at the national level in national governments. Right? Right. So, so President Xi you know, of China, right, coming out in September last year and saying, we as China uh, commit to becoming carbon neutral by 2060. Or, you know, um, in India right now, there's this goal being debated whether to be carbon neutral by 2047. But Gernot, the reason that China's doing it is why? Is China saying 2016 they're, and they're coming out with a date because they want to be accepted on the world stage? Are they doing it because they think that it's going to benefit them economically by developing those industries? This is the petrostate electrostate thing, right? This is if you are producing two thirds of all solar panels globally, if you are producing two thirds of all lithium ion batteries globally, if you are producing 45% of all wind turbines manufactured globally, as China is doing right now, then yeah, you A, want to create a domestic market for that. And B, you want to push everyone else to be more ambitious and buy more of your solar panels, lithium-ion batteries, and wind turbines. So this is, you know, what I would call sort of a virtuous cycle here happening where, of course, it needs to be, it must be, it has to be in that narrow economic self-interest of, frankly, everyone to want this transition to happen. What should we be doing in the U.S. For, from our, the perspective of our narrow self-interest? Can our, our leader, our administration, can they, can they commit us to this through the course of international agreement or do we need congressional action to whatever that is? Okay, so what could happen? What should happen? Well, we need, we need a clean electricity standard in the power sector at the federal level. We need, we need a commitment to decrease emissions in the power sector at the very least, but of course, nationwide for the entire economy, we need that sooner rather than later. And, and so we've seen with regard to climate that there's been bills introduced in the House around electric vehicle credits, things of that nature. I'm not aware of anything around national electrical standards as, as it relates to carbon output, et cetera. So it sounds like even with the Biden administration at the national level, they're still pretty constrained on what they can realistically do. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. The clean electricity standard, right, was in fact part of the original $2 trillion infrastructure proposal. Um, and, you know, depends on who you ask, it has either disappeared already completely, it is somewhere on life support, it is very much part of the conversations, it's the sort of thing that is right currently, you know, the most intense part of the of the debate. And, and the irony, by the way, the irony of this is that we're, end up, we're just hurting ourselves from a competitive standpoint, right? Because... Of course, yeah. The Republican Party is looking to protect the existing industry, but... By doing so, we are disadvantaging on a fairly significant basis the ability of our country to develop the industries which will be at the forefront of cheap energy, not clean energy, but cheap energy in, in 10 and 20 years from now. Do I have that right? 
So a corporate example, right? We just had a an activist hedge fund that owns 0.02% of Exxon stock convince, you know, the big ones, BlackRock et al., to vote for three of the board members, one. sorry. Engine the number one uh, case, right? Exactly, right. Engine number one, right? Um, over the objection of management, right? And by the way, you know, this is this is this is the big league, right? It was something like a sixty-five million dollar proxy fight. Three out of twelve board members who are suddenly, you know, on quote unquote the side of the energy transition here. And basically, just to be clear, this is not right. Enviro's now trying to go sweep in there and trying to liquidate Exxon and sort of, you know, shut it all down. Of course not, right? This goes to the sustainability, the core of the sustainability of the company. Gernot, why is it that the executives are not on board with this proposal? I mean, it seems as though it's in the longer term interest of the shareholders. So I will not pretend to, to know what's going through their minds. You know, I can, I, I can see how basically this is one of these call it the generational shift, call it sort of a fundamental shift in vision, right? So, and there's basically this big question, right? Is Exxon, is Exxon an oil company and maybe oil and gas, right? Half oil, half gas. Um, or is it an energy company where frankly, you know, even solar panels fit into the picture? Right. I guess they have to, I guess they have to figure out who they want to be when they grow up. And the big question is, you know, are they transforming themselves into, you know, a an energy company writ large, or for that matter, a carbon company, right? Like basically, you know, they turn out to be pretty good at carbon management, right? Well, if you are really good at managing carbon writ large, why not turn your pipelines around and basically start capturing the stuff, right? And become really, really good at carbon capture and storage, at air capture, right. literally right. sucking the stuff out of thin air, right? How important is lobbying in this ecosystem? I know that there have been some proposals for more transparency around lobbying that have not been yeah. successful. Do you view that as something that's um, a, a critical part of the longer-term solution? The very same day that Exxon um, had this this board vote, a Chevron had its board meeting. And actually, there sort of a, a vote that did pass was for Chevron to develop a um, you know a strategy, basically um, a strategy towards what's Chevron's role in a net zero carbon world, right? So just sort of the planning, basically. So you know that vote did pass. The vote that didn't pass, um, it got forty eight percent of the vote among its shareholders, but then didn't pass. Was um, hundred percent transparency for its lobbying, right? So, uh, you, know, as, you know, as every other company too, right? They put a tree on their annual report, but uh, then, yeah, Chevron, like any other of these, right, companies, spends tens of millions of dollars lobbying against climate policy. I'd be curious to understand whether it's gonna be mainstream is the carbon capture. Do you think that that is going to be really a mainstream part of the industrial ecosystem at some point? Much like the rest of the energy transition, the story around carbon capture is all about timing, right? So will it eventually be part of the solution? Yeah, of course. And because there are certain industrial processes, certain chemical processes, where it's frankly impossible, as far as we can tell right now, to get rid of CO2 completely. Right, you can't do certain things without actually generating CO two. Okay, so yeah, there 
carbon capture ought to play a role. Now, how big a role is anyone's guess. So you already see many of the oil majors already invest in it in a, um, in a, in a relatively small way, but still, right, that's ramping up quickly, presumably. Meanwhile, a big, big question in all of this, of course, is who pays for it? Right, right now we have this federal tax credit um, up to fifty dollars per ton of CO two captured and stored. That's not enough, turns out. Right, it doesn't compare favorably to the hundreds of dollars. Right, um, so yeah, we need more, but of course we need also a higher carbon price. You can't subsidize carbon capture to the tunes of hundreds of dollars while basically pricing carbon in the first place at you know only fifty dollars or less than that. Right. right? Right. That doesn't work, right? Where do you see innovation leading to potential opportunity for capital deployment, whether it be in the private space or the public space, whether it be in the U.S. or outside of the U.S.? What areas of industry do you think are going to make the largest contributions going forward that, that aren't fully developed yet? The EV sector is, sort of, is an interesting one. Country after country, you know, state after state, California, right, came out... Um, no more internal combustion engines after 2035, right? Being sold in the state. And, you know, Germany, right? Sort of other countries have the same, have, have similar goals, right? Frankly, what I would look at is the traditional car companies, right? The Volkswagens of the world, uh, the Toyotas of the world, the Fords, right? The Ford F-150, right? The, the all-electric version of the most popular vehicle sold in this country. Right. Um, how that will, frankly, change the industry fundamentally on the one hand. And yeah. Right. So investment opportunities along those lines. Right. So, you know, if if Ford comes out swinging, is it winning vis-a-vis -vis General Motors and um, Chrysler and right, its direct competitors um, in the U.S.? And frankly, within each of these sectors, there's always going to be, you know, the leaders, the innovators. I can easily imagine GM looking at uh, looking at the F-150, right, over at Ford, and saying, uh, "Wait, like these guys came out swinging, um, you know, let's see how how that's going to go." Uh, while at the same time, right, um, you don't, you know, you don't see these being advertised as being driven as sort of the, "Hey, I'm an environmentalist too," but basically because they are fundamentally better products. Right? right, because it's fundamentally better to drive the EV than the internal combustion well, that's engine. Right. Um, they're better for the environment, and they're 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 a little bit more expensive, but not prohibitively more expensive. Um, and I would imagine that you know other areas, um, batteries. Clearly, there's going to continue to be a tremendous amount of innovation and opportunity in batteries, um, and it's an area that we continue to be very focused on at, at Wilmington Trust. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. It's one that um, we love to reprise at some point because it's, a, it's an area that's critical to us and it's an area that's evolving very quickly. And it's an area, frankly, that has lots of very exciting potential for investors. So let me summarize what I think are some key takeaways from today. First, I would start with the idea that there's no question that climate policy has hit the mainstream. It's hit the mainstream on a global basis. We don't know yet whether or not there's going to be significant industry changing legislation that will be successful in the U.S., not just because we hope that the climate will benefit from that, the planet will benefit from it, but frankly, domestic industry would benefit from it, which is, a, I think, an important acknowledgement 
if we think about not just the immediate benefit to, to shareholders, but over the longer term, um, we need to build in this country very sustainable industries. Um, so that's that's the first set of conclusions. Second is that prices right today, given the investments that have been made globally for a much greater incorporation of renewable energy into the domestic economy here in the U.S. In fact, there is a lot of ways a bias towards carbon. The thumb is on the scale towards carbon-based industries rather than even having a level, level playing field towards some of these renewable uh, uh, due to lobbying, due to inertia, status quo, et cetera. And that's something that we need to keep an, an eye on and see how those dynamics play out uh, as a society. And then last, I would say, is that it is important to recognize that those big companies in our economy, the Exxons and Chevrons and carbon-based companies, if you will, have a very important role to play in the future. They're going to be part of our ecosystem. They're not going anywhere. But these big, massive companies, which have historically been hydrocarbon companies, will need to, at some point, in some way, pivot to be energy companies and will need to embrace um, renewables. And it's their ability to do that and to recognize that and to do, do it successfully, which will define the investment opportunity that's associated with each one. Just as the same thing in the automobile industry is the case, as Ford or GM moves more quickly and more effectively and executes better, they will become the, if you will, Tesla of the, of the future. They, they will become the um, the stocks that will be rewarded um, for their ability. There's more than enough market share for more than one player in that in that space. And so a lot of these um, sort of old economy industrial companies are, are going to succeed or fail based on their ability to pivot, if you will, to the new approach. So thank you again for being here today, Gernot. It was really a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Tony. That was a great summary. Great to be here. As always, thank you to our listeners for joining us. I encourage you to visit WilmingtonTrust.com for a roundup of our investment and planning ideas. You can subscribe to Capital Considerations on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast channel to ensure that you get updates on future episodes. Thank you again, and thank you for listening. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to 
professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank, and may provide to seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, M&T Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risk, including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of M&T Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, M&T Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through M&T Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail and business deposits, and other business and personal banking services and products are offered by M&T Bank, member FDIC. 2021 M&T Bank Corporation and its subsidiaries, all rights reserved. Private market investments are only available to investors that meet the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission's definitions of qualified purchaser and accredited investor.